1: Sometimes.
0: And sometimes, normal. On this episode, I'm joined by Chris Mays, the writer and director of the sci fi film Hemisphere. Chris worked in Hollywood and with National Geographic before moving to Virginia. During the pandemic, he began building movie sets in his basement for the script that he had written. We discussed the process of taking a film from an idea to a completed project, how AI could actually benefit scriptwriters, Chris's sci-fi inspirations, how space is the next Wild West, and we touch on the current limitations of space travel and how David Grush's UFO whistleblower testimony could change that in the near future. Give Chris a follow, check out Hemisphere streaming online, and let him know that you heard him on Wild and Weird. Enjoy the show. Are you looking to buy a home in New Jersey, escape the city and move to the suburbs. Finally purchased a vacation home on the lake or down the shore? Maybe you're one of the lucky ones who are retiring and moving out of state. If so, let me help you. Keller Williams and the Real Estate Professional Group have what you need to make your goals come true. Reach out and have a conversation with someone who will put you first. Contact Brian McCoach at 856-321-1212 or email brianmccoach at kw.com. Are you looking for CBD for your pet? My friends at Pure Pet Wellness have what you need. They use the highest quality ingredients. While other companies may use synthetic oils in their CBD, Pure Pet Wellness uses organic ingredients, organically grown hemp, organic coconut oil, organic shea butter, organic beeswax, and that's just to name a few. A family-owned and operated company that also offers fast shipping. Go to purepetwellness.com for all your pet's CBD needs and use the discount code WILD and Weird at checkout. That's wild, A-N-D, weird. Treat your animal right. Go to purepetwellness.com. Welcome to another episode of Wild, Weird, and Sometimes Normal. I'm your host, Brian. And today my guest is Chris Mays. He's a writer and director. Welcome, Chris.
1: Hey, thanks a lot, Brian. Thank you for having me.
0: Hey, I appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much. So you have an interesting movie, a sci-fi movie that came out that you've written and directed yourself.
1: That's correct. Yeah. All right. Let's start with the movie itself. What's happening? The title of the movie is Hemisphere, and it's a low-budget sci-fi thriller. I really kind of conceived during the COVID lockdown, when I had a lot of time at home, working out of the home. And I cleared a basement space out and realized, oh, this could be a, a soundstage. I could build sets here. you know. And as time went on, that kind of grew. And so it reached a point where... Just about a year ago, summer, a year ago, I ended up shooting for six days with actors and a crew on sets that we had built and then uh, ended up doing post some reshooting. And then just in summer of this year, I got a distributor, which was Indie Rights. And so the movie was has come out on digital platforms as of late October. So it's now available on Amazon Prime, uh, Google Play. It's even on Tubi. Because that's a very popular service now for people that don't mind looking at advertisements during their programs.
0: I'm going to go on a quick rant real quick before we loop back into your stuff. Yeah, 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 but, for sure. <laughs> but so HBO, I don't know if you have, or Max, whatever they call it now, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, So I have that and you pay a crazy number a month. And you play
1: these movies, there's commercials in them. What is that? What is Yeah, happening? Yeah, yeah. No, well, so I there was a webinar I attended uh, a couple of weeks ago that a distributor held and it's all about how the streamers are not making money they're not able to cover their costs from licensing all these movies so you pay whatever for max or netflix or hulu or whatever it is and it's at best it's break even and some of them are losing money so they've all started launching these parallel the avod ad supported streaming services and they're using that to create revenue because they're not making it to the extent that they once were on the, the VOD or s you know, the subscriber stuff. So, so maybe that's it. Maybe that's Max is like, well, we're going to try to make money. We're trying to do both, you know? It's a little weird because it's like you're kind of competing with yourself, it would seem.
0: Right, so you, you pay, I think it's $10 a month and then it has, like, the ads aren't terrible, but at the same time, like, it was shocking when I first saw it. It took me a minute to realize, like, what was happening. And I was like, you guys keep showing the same Ford commercial over and over and yeah, over. Yeah,
1: yeah. I I think Amazon does that at the beginning. They leave you alone during the show, but they throw a lot of stuff. Now, when you select a movie or a series, they'll promote other things, you know, at the front of it. So somebody says we'll see more of that as time goes on. I hope not too much because that was really the whole appeal of, you know, streaming in the first place was you could binge stuff. So some of them are now dropping stuff. Two at a time episodes, you know, which kind of defeats that where you want to watch, I want to watch eight episodes maybe, you know? So anyway, we'll see. It's, we're in an interesting time for sure.
0: It's funny. I get that like the streamers came out and Netflix did and like when they first just had your DVDs on demand and like killed Blockbuster and all that. But it also yeah. kind of like, took something away. And I had this like, like too nostalgic and like 80s and 90s of me, uh, but that's why I grew up. But like there was something about going there and like, you know, a Friday night or like a long weekend, whatever it was. And you find the movie that you wanted but then you also found the movies you had no idea were out, right? They're yeah, covered with good, yeah. so you pick it up. Yeah. But now, like, they don't really have that. You had a cable package, and you paid, you know, whatever it was, and you got all these these random channels. Made the commercials, and that w- that was part of the deal. And then they start streaming, yeah. and you pay more not to have commercials. And now, you know, there's been talks that Netflix is going to come back and put commercials in and do all these things. And all these streaming services are all broken out into bits, so you can buy like piecemeal but now you're spending more than you ever would have on a cable. The yeah. like, you know, Disney plus uh, Disney, whatever they're like, Oh, we're going to do Hulu. We're going to do ESPN plus we're going to do like, you guys are just reinventing the cable package. Like you deconstructed yeah. it and now you're just putting it back together and reassembling uh, you know, like, it. it. It is weird. <laughs> yeah.
1: Even to the extent that uh, the AVOD, the advertiser supported stuff, you know, that's kind of replacing what was network TV and, not i worked uh for years before i moved here i live in northern virginia just outside washington dc now and i moved here from los angeles and when i was in la i worked first as a screenwriter and then i worked in post-production for network tv so i saw how the network tv animal operated from a certainly from a post-production standpoint and you know just more and more the the run times would get shorter and shorter you know a show that was in a one hour was like well it's 50 minutes well, it's 48 now it's 4430, you know, they would can continue to shrink it and stick more ads to where you're watching 20 minutes of advertisement for every hour of network TV. And so a lot of that probably motivated the streaming, you know, no commercial revolution when that took hold. I think I think certainly the I was certainly motivated and I'm sure a lot of other audience members too. I promise we'll get back to hemisphere in a minute. So with your <laughs> with your
0: your Hollywood background and all this, and they just settled the writers' strike, and I think they just ratified the contract that was out. But there's all of this, you know, this AI that's coming out that they can. The early stages of AI we're at now. Yeah, that, that's yeah. that's released. But reading somewhere or I heard it somewhere that for the most part they can get an AI script for like a cheesy Hallmark Christmas movie or whatever, because yep. you know there's not a lot of there's not a lot of depth in that. It's it's pretty easy. Woman, broken heart, moves back to small town, reconnects with old boyfriend, Christmas tree, everyone's happy. Yeah. But they were talking about that like the AI is pretty good at writing those scripts. And you would now have to pay all these writers and you have to pay all this stuff. Where do you see the future of this go? Do you see this being a, a huge problem? It's also hard to extrapolate where yeah, AI I is d- going.
1: I, I think probably the reality is that it, it will be more of a tool. I mean, I've I've used it just on the outlining stage on scripts. I do the outline or I do my take on it and then I'll run it through it just for to see. And it'll, it'll come back with a totally, sometimes totally different. And sometimes there are aspects that are, I would not have thought of. I'll see the AI will be like, I'm going to introduce this plot point earlier than you had and it's going to last longer and then resolve here. But I think you need to have a human being, a writer initiate it. Probably ideally the writer would do a first draft and then maybe if we're lucky, maybe you have an AI giving you notes rather than studio executives. I'll say this, and I'm sure it won't make me popular with studios, but the notes you tend to get from human beings in studio development roles are usually not particularly useful. Uh, I shouldn't say usually, but half the time you get notes that are completely useless. The other half the time they read the script and they thought about it. And so I think replacing that with an AI is not necessarily a bad thing. It's just It'll be like you deliver your first draft as a writer and then, you know, the studio will say, "Okay, the AI has come back three days later. Here are its notes. Incorporate those into the rewrite. So that's the part where there'll have to be some give and take. I think we'll always will need a human being, a thinking, you know, movie going writer to decipher and and you make judgment calls. That's a good idea. That's a a trope or that's borrowed from too many other things I don't want to, you know. Pull that in, but that's exact. That's initially, I think, how I I see it playing out.
0: That's interesting. You know, just bringing up like the analytics. So part of it's like this Billy Bean Moneyball for the Oakland A's that like you can just sit here and you know just pigeonhole these people in based on salary, based on you know their averages. Uh, and yeah. the Sixers were we're trying to do it too with with the process. But then there's also the people like you know you have to have the eye for it. like this guy passed the eye test, and I understand that like his stats don't match up here, but you can't really measure clutch and things like that. So the AI coming out is kind of like that money ball aspect of it. But it is interesting that you bring up that it could run, you know, analytics on it and be like, actually, this trope is used like 48% of the time. And you'd yeah. rather go with this yeah. one.
1: And you're like, oh, actually, you know, hey, that's pretty good. No, that's that's what it is literally. I would be more sort of fearful for Madison Avenue because what used to probably take writers a day to come up with five pitches, and AI can probably do it again. It's dependent on the info that you feed it. You have to put in really, I find the more specific you are, the better the info that you get back from it. So if you say, you know, I want to write a historical drama about Robert E. Lee and and Ulysses Grant, and they go to Las Vegas together whatever the, you know, I'm making that up. But if you gave it very specific parameters and said, give me a, a synopsis or a treatment, a two-page treatment, it'll give you something that that will make sense, you know, and it isn't like it's something that you know that's not movieish it will feel like oh this is written by a a person you know there's some good thinking that went into it so i didn't actually so i incorporated none of that on hemisphere except maybe (laughs) on the post-production side some of the ai that helps you clean up audio that type of stuff so that was you know i guess good or bad hemisphere was sweating it out the old way of writing drafts and giving them to my i had two producers on the project and and those are the people that gave me feedback that I then incorporated and and uh you know got it to the point where I was ready to shoot. What kind
0: of cinematic background did your producers have to give you insight? Like, you know, so you're talking yeah, about so the what, Hollywood, so they might not always be productive to what you want.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Corey Krinsky was the really the main producer on the project. And Corey and I had worked together at National Geographic uh, about seven, seven or eight years ago. And he was he was like my right hand he was my coordinator we ran the natural history unit so we did wildlife shows and i was a production manager for them at the time and some point there was like one of their green fridays where they you know you work a half day and save energy he and i went out on the patio and we're talking and he's like I, you know we talked about sci-fi and he was like i love sci-fi and i said wow you know i just wrote a script would you read it and i kind of gave it to him thinking i wouldn't get back really usable Feedback because a lot of times when you give you know a script to somebody who's not kind of in the industry or at least experienced with that, you know they give you very general sort of notes, and he had very specific feedback and and it sort of evolved into this ongoing you know relationship where I would give him, you know for really up until three or four years ago I still was pursuing professional screenwriting. So I would still give him things to read, and and I always viewed him as a really useful person, particularly for sci-fi. He's he's very good at that. So he was an English major, didn't have any background. He's just was someone a moviegoer, you know, which says a lot about my own feeling is probably your best training if you want to make movies. You can go to film school, which I did and learn a lot and take classes in many respects, the best thing is go see movies and talk about movies with friends and other like-minded people and, and then try to make some things, you know, try to shoot a short or something, you know, with actors. And, and that's almost the best way to learn how to do it. It is, there are aspects of it that are like a trade school, you know, it's like, if you wanted to learn to put up walls and you learned, okay, I don't know how to mix concrete, cinder block, rebar, I need to, you know, do this. With grading the ground, you know, you learn those things, and I think the same thing applies with filmmaking—that there are certain you need, you know, to have the script structured so that it will sort of support what you're trying to do, and then you build from there. So, so that was Corey, and then Jay Cappy was a filmmaker friend that I came to really during post after we'd shot everything on Hemisphere. Uh, Jay and I met in film school. I went to UCLA, he was at USC, and we kept in touch over the years. And again, I gave him a cut of the movie and I think I gave him a few sort of scenes cut together early on, not really expecting too much. And he's he's a very talented filmmaker in his own right. So he's more likely to give me, you know, from Jay, I'll get really specific things. Do you have a a cutaway of this? This shot goes on too long. You need a sound effect here. This is distracting. You don't need this backstory of, you know, cut this part of dialogue. And and so with Jay's notes, I can literally sit down and recut something, and he he was very good at helping me zero in on the story more.
0: No, I think that's great, you know, especially talking about their backgrounds and and the first gentleman not being too much into the the directing or the writing, and yeah. then just being a moviegoer and then seeing like we know what we want to see sometimes, and maybe if you're too deep into it, you can't give the right feedback. So I think that was pretty good, you know, for him to do that. Uh, and then it was interesting, your your other friend being the filmmaker having that. The executives at the Hollywood studios, it's not like you're the best writer and you get promoted to vice president <laughs> of the studio or you're the best director. And you would think that's what you gonna be, but they're yeah, but they're running it for for dollars and it's a business. So I get that. But the people giving you feedback on your script, like they're not comedians or they're not into the sci-fi so deep and like there's just you, you know, writing majors, or they just happen to just climb the ladder the right way
1: and Oh, you're talking about yeah for like for professional or for hemisphere?
0: Oh, uh, but that was for, for professional. So I, I, you know, yeah, I, I like what you did, and obviously, there's probably you know, multiple ways. You know, you can see Hollywood's a billion-dollar business, multi-billion-dollar yeah. business. Yeah, but also having people who who love movies and then someone who has the experience, where in the Hollywood world, the ones giving feedback are are they seasoned vets of making movies? Right. Yeah. There? I, uh,
1: there's a certain amount of fear-based decision making. Also, I think that occurs with Hollywood, which. If you say yes to something, you can get fired. And here we had none of that. I mean, it was self-funded and it was totally wide open. I could try, you know, I was the studio. So I could say, hey, I want to shoot this this way. I want to focus. I am going to do the whole scene where we're focused on this foreground object. And she's talking in the background and we're just on her helmet, you know, or for example. And there's nobody I had to clear that with. It's just like, I think that's a cool thing. I just want to do it that way. And so the, the benefit of doing, working on the independent production side is you have more room to try things and, and even reshoots. If something doesn't work, it's not the end of the world. You know, it's like in the case of Hemisphere, the sets were here in my home in the basement. We pre-lit them and they existed. I kept them assembled and in place so that I could do reshoots at times. You know, if, if I was editing and I'm like, oh, I missed a shot of this or I need to, I don't like this. There is one scene in particular where the Sandra character, the lead character, is dealing with her ex-husband late in the movie, and he gives her a message and leaves her a lot of info. And I, I did it, we did it one way where he wasn't sick and wasn't injured. And it, it was just flat. It was like so it was a so-what scene. And, and when I looked at it, I'm like, God, I did this wrong. It should be the other way. So emotionally, it's the worst time in the story for her to see him in this state so that it eats on her and now she has to go climb outside a space station and and repair something so it was like because i had everything here i just scheduled page the actress and got the camera and lighting and and a a crew person and we we came back and did it and that's that's something that would cost you you know tens of thousands of dollars to do uh, on a hollywood scale and you know on an indie production you can do that for you know, two or 300 bucks, you know? So, so that, that's, you know, that's what I suspect is sort of the dividing line between independence and, and uh, Hollywood scale productions.
0: Okay. That makes sense. So I feel like we've gone too far into this. We're going to loop back.
1: Hemisphere, yeah. can you just give me an overview of the movie? Yeah. So the, the plot line of Hemisphere is a, is a woman who's basically an investigator, a contract hire. The movie set uh, in 2049. So it's intended to be, you know, around 25 years in the future. And the idea I had is that at this point, you know, the Elon Musk's and Jeff Bezos of the world has, that's expanded to become mineral excavation in our solar system and and in the vicinity of Earth. So Mercury, Venus, not so much because of the atmosphere is poisonous, but any planet, Mars has minerals uh, on it as well. And in this case, it's a woman investigator who's hired by her ex-husband, to find out what happened there's a mineral excavation facility uh, orbiting mercury and it's gone completely silent and they don't haven't heard from the crew in 10 days and he asks a favor and she's still emotionally hung up on him even though he's remarried and she agrees to take the job and she goes and the place is completely empty she checks the top to bottom and it looks like you know there might have been hijackers there's some evidence she finds she finds one dead body behind a locked door and part of the space station has been shut down or has been sort of locked off uh, where she can't get access to it. And she eventually finds a crew person who's hiding in the ceiling crawl space. And that woman ends up being the key to what happened. And that woman knows what happened who is responsible but doesn't really trust this management person from from earth so it's really the relationship of those two characters and going into it i tried i just thought i want to take two and make them as opposite as possible personality wise stick them in a situation where the only way they're going to get out of this and figure it out is they have to trust each other and work together that's kind of the in a nutshell you know they're hijackers that are involved with what happened, and they eventually come back, and the two women have to defend themselves.
0: That's awesome. So, is this your it, first movie that you've written? Is this? I, I, you know, I know you've done writing and, and directing. Is this, so, is this your first movie you've, you've written and directed on your own?
1: It's the first feature film. I did a short long ago, before I uh, even had kids. I did a short film, twenty minutes in thirty-five millimeter, which is what you know existed at that time. We didn't have digital, certainly not four K or even HD available so this is the first feature film which you know was there's a certain amount of ignorance that's good for a writer director that you're like oh it'll just be you know i wrote the script to be an hour and a half and i wrote the middle section that's what the two are the most sort of integrated and the front section is the first character alone and the back part of it is the resolution and more sort of action and so the thought was let me write a script and come up with a plan to shoot it that's not going to debilitate me. So I kind of backed into it. In a sense, I lied to myself. I was like, all you have to do is shoot for six days, and you get the hardest stuff done, and then the other stuff will be easy. You'll just you know, build on it. Let me guess. It didn't work that way. Uh, it does, but there's a lot of stress. What happens is the, the first six days, thankfully, it did work out great. I got everything with the two actresses. But then as I'm filling in, you know, you're like, oh, I, I still need to shoot Marauders. I still need to shoot her in a, you know, a, arriving at the space station and getting the call from the husband and, or the ex-husband. There was an awful lot of fill in material that what I did is in the first edit, I just left placeholders. I cut together what had been shot and then I would stick a shot of what's going to be a scene and be like, you know, cut away to Marauders discussing XYZ. And it would be a shot of something or cut to, out, you know, space. And we see, you know, the space station hovering, you know, in orbit around Mars. So I use those both. It was helpful for timing purposes to do that. And and it gets just try to get a sense, even though i had only shot, you know, at this point, maybe 65 percent of the movie. That last 35 percent just to kind of help me get like it's again, it's a it's a you try to demystify it as much as possible, you know. So that was the process I used to, to try to be like. It's all right. Relax. It'll happen. It may take longer than you thought. You might not get it all done. And I think originally my plan was I'd have the movie you know, shot and edited in 2023. And I really didn't finish editing until about May of this year. Has this scared you all from future projects? Or
0: is this like giving you the not fuel? Not at
1: all. No, no, no. I, what, what it has done, if anything, is makes me really, really looking forward to doing this again. I think there's a ton that I learned. I don't know that I would write. script again quite the way i wrote hemisphere because there was stuff that we changed and then sort of invented a little differently during the shoot and so i think doing it again i would like to have the script a little more locked when i start but i think as far as working with actors i I have to give huge huge kudos to the two actresses uh, Paige ryan and julie cashmanian who uh, corey and i cast them just using actors access and i didn't know what to expect and got these two very professional actresses that showed up and knew their lines and were not afraid to do long takes. We did a lot of stuff where it was like, let's do the scene all the way through, you know, let's rehearse it, block it out. And then with the crew when they're here, we're just going to do the whole thing through and then we'll jump in and get our pickups. But that part of it, I would absolutely use again, the rehearsing, getting good, strong actors like Paige and Julie. And then, uh, and Eduardo as well, the third, I should give him credit. The male character who is largely just on a display screen that they're talking to, he's on earth communicating with them. You know, he was in Atlanta the whole time. And so we just did his stuff through, he had a camera set up and we'd do a Zoom like you and I are doing. And then he would, we would do the, you know, the scenes he was in and he would then send me these camera files and I cut those in. so. Anyway, I had a, a great experience with the actors and I, I would probably simplify next time trying not to do something quite as big in scope.
0: So when you started with your script for Hemisphere, you said this like during the lockdown you were having it, but it had to be juggling around your head, like just, you know, bouncing around in there for a little bit. When when was this first starting to become an idea or become an itch that you had to scratch?
1: Yeah. So I would say in in late, in really, or early 2021, um, I left the job that I was in and I took a job on a feature film as a production manager. And that gave me some flexibility with my work hours. And I started really getting serious about it. I, I wrote, I think the first three drafts were just one character. It was a male character and an AI computer. And they were in orbit around the sun. And the whole story was like a Robinson Crusoe type thing. And I did like three drafts of that. And then Corey said, when I gave it to him, he's like, you need another character. You need another human. You need two people to to build this out better to, to there's dialogue and, and you can have them bump heads a little bit. So it, it kind of, a, it took me probably about a year and a half total of writing seven or eight drafts of it to where I zeroed into this is the story I want to tell. I want it to be, there's something wrong. The crew has gone missing. Someone's dispatched to figure it out. And it's more like a murder mystery with thriller aspects in it. So that, Took all in all, probably about a year and a half. And and during that whole time, I was building, kind of to my wife's dismay, these sets in the basement. Our basement had been occupied by kids when they were growing up. When they left went to college, it's like, it's an empty space. No one's using it. I'm taking it. So I told her that, my wife, and I don't know that she understood exactly what that meant, you know, feature film, sci-fi basement. And when she started saying, what is this? Well, that's a display screen. This is the bridge. This is the kitchen area. This is going to be a a little pod that they fly around. You know, when I started, it was helpful to do both to write and build sets at the same time because one informed the other. And sometime during that, I brought in Joe Tyler, who's a DP friend that I had worked with, and he would walk through and look at the sets, you know, and say, comment, I I would use these two lenses. This is not a very big space. So, you know, try to open it up. I think with the prepper room, which is the crawl space with the two eventually both women end up hiding there i had this you know this big area where they could stand up and he said put a put a false ceiling put something where they got to crouch underneath and they're it's claustrophobic and they're uncomfortable and so the good part of having this stuff sort of evolving was i could have people walk through what do you think of this this is going to be this and they'd be like oh why don't you put this on the wall you know so you can get My advice, if somebody was ever considering this type of thing, the benefit of as you doing it, as you go, is that you can get direct feedback from people, you know, as you're doing it. you are going to think you're a little strange because it is odd to say to your son and his college friends, "Uh, you know, I'm Mr. Mays and uh, yeah, I'm going to try to write and direct this movie. And so I built this crazy, you know, fictional universe in my basement. Your kids have to get a kick out of that, though. That's that's really cool. I think so. I think again, until, until I got other people involved, I think I, they truly th- thought I'd gone nuts or something, you know, my son <laughs> like, at one can't you point, just get, like had, a Porsche and have a middle life crisis, like a normal person. <laughs> I think my son sat me down as like, dad, I'm very concerned. I feel like you're not getting enough from our family. We should be enough for you. And I had to say, look, Jack, I was a filmmaker before I ever had you, you know, you don't really know me that way, but that's what I used to do. I was a writer and then, you know, got into post-production. And so I I just say, look, I just want to see what I can do, what I'm capable of. So I think when I started, when we got it cast and I got crew people aboard, then my family relaxed. They're like, OK, it's, other people think it's not crazy. So maybe we need to re- adjust our thinking on this.
0: Right. No, I think that's good. And definitely when you have a prepper room, you can't have this like big spacious area where people are watching the movie and they're like, oh, well, I could put like a little couch over here and like, you know, my gaming <laughs> yeah. system. They have to be like, it has to be like John McClane and in, in Die Hard and you're going through the little air vent, like, oh, that's terrible. You right. barely fit. You know, yeah. people like just sweating in their seat.
1: Yeah. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> no, it's, it's hell. it's funny. You get, I would say I had maybe 30% of what the movie could be from the sets that I started. And then 10 days before we shot, we we had a shooting schedule to start in late July last year. Corey called me and said, "I have this friend who's an art director. She's in Knoxville, works for Discovery, but she used to live in Fairfax. She's coming up this weekend. Meet with her and tell her, let her see what you're doing." And that was Gabby Salbert, and she ended up finishing all the sets. It was her and then a props assist locally here, her and Lena. But I have to give them tons of credit because. Again, you get, it's hard. It's better, you know, you're the director. You have these ideas. I had tons of sketches of what I wanted the rooms to look like, the sets. But to hand that to someone who has experience, they walk through and they're like, you know, the kitchen is this. And the prepper room, you need Phoebe's artwork on the wall because she's been there for a long time. So she's had time to sketch and she's anxious. So, you know, they start adding all this stuff. And then the thing has a personality to it afterwards that it's not anything I would have ever brought to it. You know, had I just done it alone.
0: So I was your your low budget description. I I feel like you're underselling like what you're doing here. Now maybe like the dollar amount compared to like an Avengers movie isn't there, but there's a, a lot of hard work and effort. You have people coming in and helping. And this isn't just like a one-man show and an iPhone in the woods, and, right? And, you know, and right. you're like, let's just make this uh, the Blair Witch <laughs> I, project I, with an
1: iPhone and it costs ten bucks. Like this, there's a lot going on here. It, there is, and it it didn't happen. Overnight, but when it when I made the decision, and I, I think it really took hold about two months before we started shooting. I had revised the script all that I thought that I could, and I, I was I was actually scared about showing it to actors because I thought they're going to tell you this is stupid and you're this you know this won't work. And you or fire them, you fire the actor. Well, I just there was part <laughs> of me that I really I knew that the movie, you know, Corey emphasized this a lot. He said, Chris, you have to let me help you with the casting. So we get the two really good actors because you can't do a two-hander in an contained space like this with a lot of dialogue and not have strong actors. So he said, that, you know, let's do this, do it right, spend the time casting it. And when I did that with him, when I came out of it and we had Paige and Julie on board, and at that point, again, it was, the script was originally a male lead character being hired by his ex-wife. To go to Mercury and discovers a female character, a crew member hiding in the ceiling. So it was a male female thing, and because of how the casting went down, I had these two actresses that were just great. And I was walked away like, how do I? God, how, I only have one female part. How do I make this work? That really love what Paige is doing, and I thought, well, what if I just flip it and make the male lead that's a woman? And so it's a certain dynamic that I don't see often in movies of what if it's two women and one of them. In- is in charge, you know, but, uh, on paper anyway, but the other knows more because she's the techie who's been living there. And so let's have them butt heads. And one is just trying to follow the protocols and and do the report and do the investigation. And the other one's like, I don't know who you are. I don't trust you. You know, I I was just, people tried to kill me. I've been hiding, you know? So it was, it, it became for me clear, this is going to be a professional venture. And so I need to, just i need to get a sound tech i need to get joe tyler you know i need to get his dates joe we're going to shoot on these dates and 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 it forced me to really book people and put lock in place the right people including gabby with art direction to just be like Corey's like i got an art director i was like great let me meet with her we met you know the day after he called me about her she and i were sitting down going through the script and talking about it so it it became necessary i think when I saw the caliber of the actresses, I thought I need to bring everything else up to that. It, it can't, you know, and I think earlier, if you had asked me three months earlier, there were times where I thought, well, maybe I'll light and shoot it. And I don't have anywhere near this, the skills of a an experienced DP. So I'm glad I didn't do that. To your point, I think that I would say that that for any person making a low budget film, even if you only have a crew of three, which is what we really had, me plus Three other p- people on the crew and then the two actresses. So it wasn't big. Even in that scenario, as a director, you're giving it to them. So you're saying, I have storyboards or I have we blocked it out. This is how I want to shoot it. The DP will say, What about red light here? What if I do this? Or you have it this way. What if I move the camera over here? So the background's more interesting. You know, you let them do all that. And that gives you more room as the director, to let go of those things. I don't need to do all these 10 things. I can just do, I'll watch the actresses. I half the time forgot the script, which is crazy. They were always like, Chris, your script's over there. Because I didn't <laughs> need it at a certain point. The actors knew the lines. The crew people knew the, the scene. And so the kind of, in a strange way, the last thing I needed was the script. What I really needed was just pay attention and watch your sk- your shoot schedule. You need to get these done before lunch, these scenes. And then after lunch, these ones, you know, so it, it's like you can do that. You just have to delegate, I guess. I like your process. I like leaving the script
0: behind, too. You're like, hey, they've got it. They know what's going on. <laughs> and as long as like, it feels good as I'm it's doing, a, it, like it
1: should be good. The two things I was famous for with the crew were bumping my head on the edge of the set constantly. <laughs> I cannot. I realized I, I'm the Jerry Lewis of directors. If I try to talk while I'm moving, I'll smack. I knocked camera stuff over. I mean, it was clumsy as hell that. And then the other thing is, you know, the script was never, I would put it down and then I, it's gone. And thankfully there are people who knew where I put it and it (laughs) said Chris's copy on the top. So, you know, (laughs) yeah. Yeah.
0: So what inspired you to have a space theme, to have this in outer space, to give the sci-fi angle, you know, growing up, what were you, you watching?
1: You know, it's interesting. I mean, I've been there, there are a lot of Sci-fi movies. Corey and I talked about this. Um, just you know, early sci-fi movies that were an influence on us, like he, both of the Alien and Aliens movies, uh, The Thing, which is a group of people, you know, stuck in a remote location dealing with, you know, in that case, uh, an alien creature. Another movie that's actually a, uh, a movie that I'm quite fond of is Panic Room, which is a Jodie Foster, Kristen Stewart movie where a huge portion of the movie is the two of them are stuck in this room, you know, and there's stuff going on outside it, but it's an amazing achievement. Uh, Dave Fincher, David kep I think, wrote the script on that. You know, it's an amazing achievement to make something that, that is that tense. So I think those things, and then there's something about space, it's dangerous as hell. I guess my documentary experience with Nat Geo was that we did a couple space movies, and you realize it's really, really inhospitable and unforgiving. unforgiving space you know there's no oxygen no gravity there's tons of solar radiation that'll kill you if you you know if you're not shielded and so in my head I was always this is the most you could set anything you could set a kindergarten classroom in space and it could be terrifying if the wrong things happen so I think I've been kicking it around probably for you know 10 or 15 years in various ways and then the, the last piece of it was just Uh, There's a certain lawlessness in space, which is once you leave Earth and you're far enough away, there aren't any police contained group of crew people. If somebody decides to go rogue or take the law into their own hands or do whatever they feel like, there's not a lot you can do. You know, you're if you call the police, you know, maybe in two weeks they'll show up or whatever. You know, so a couple of light years. Yeah. So those those elements were like, there's got to be a way to tell a really good thriller and hopefully convince people that we're really in space. We're really out in this small part of what is supposed to be a large mineral excavation facility. You know, what we're really just seeing is this a little contained living area portion of it. You know, so
0: space is going to be our new Wild West, you know, whenever Elon and Jeff Bezos are able to, to settle <laughs> up there and they cover yeah. that like a little bit in Star Wars, like Han Solo has a smuggling compartments and, and maybe the uh, the Empire is going to board your ship and things like that. Yeah, But there, there's not going to be, there's going to be these outposts, you know, and, and all these things like, I, you know, so I'm just regurgitating Star Wars lore to you, but there's gonna be all these outposts of like where the police are going to be and they're not going to be there. And like on the ocean, if you're getting hijacked, like there's a way to fight. And if your ship is hit, like maybe you're going to sink, maybe you're not, but like, if yeah. your spaceship is hit and there's a hole in it, like everything's getting sucked out <laughs> and like it's just like destroyed. Like yeah. it's really this horrible, horrible place. Well, wasn't
1: it, you know, they recently had a, a group of people that went in a submersible a titan, yeah, Arctic. down there goes the Titanic. Yeah, yeah, and the thing yeah. just imploded. It was a yep. carbon fiber thing, and it's like, and they probably had a millisecond to think, oh, shit. And it's like, nope, you're dead. It's over.
0: I was going to say, so in, in the ocean, what, uh, everything's trying to get in and in space, everything's trying to get out. Right. So I mean, like, this is like things that I came in and comprehended. Like, how do you, you decide, like, I'm going to build a submersible and take it down 3000 feet to go look at the graveyard <laughs> of like one of the most famous ships. And then it explodes and people are, you know, it was big news for a week or two, but now people are yeah. probably like, oh, let's go build another one.
1: Yeah, it is, I guess, part of the human, you know, human nature or the, our curiosity is that we're always exploring, you know, it, it's there, it's the unknown. So we have to go into it and see what it is. But You know, there's one thing that I do think we'll see more of in the future is robotics in space. And remind me before we're done with the podcast, I actually have a reveal with Hemisphere and and that topic. But love it. I feel like that's the perfect application. If you have a you know robotic person, they don't need to breathe oxygen. They don't need to eat. If they die, you know whatever the cost of that is, it's a million dollars. But you you're not paying insurance. You know whatever. It's almost a safer way to explore. If you sent maybe a human and, and a couple, you know, robotic individuals to, uh, to do the bidding that you need to do. It's safer in that worst case, you lose some machines, but you're not losing human lives. That's a good point. And, you know, the prototypes that they
0: develop now, like they're super expensive, but as this goes on and that technology gets cheaper and you're actually going to have machines creating the new machines, you know, you're going to see this down the line to make it more affordable.
1: Right, right. No, I I think that, that's an interesting thing, even in AI designing an AI. <laughs> right.
0: So we talk about running through the script, it's finding your flaws in the script, or this is used too much. And this is something I saw a while ago for some of the pharmaceutical companies, like their research and development, if they wanted to create a vaccine for you know, whatever it is, you know, the flu, and they would have to take all the different ingredients that they want and then put it through trial. But now they can put it into a supercomputer and it can... You know, try all the different things and comes up with like I guess a better formula. Be still have to do the R and D part on it, uh, but it's more right. of like giving right. it, hey, this is what we have available. What do you think would have the least adverse reactions and and things like that? And now, if you're gonna put AI in charge of building other AI, it's gonna say, oh, it doesn't actually need five <laughs> fingers. And I know, like for a human to see three fingers might be weird, but actually improved, you know, whatever we're not thinking of.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, it's 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 very much the stuff we can't see because we're not wired to be a hundred percent factually oriented is I I'm a big believer in the scientific method you know you ask a question then you look at the feedback and information and then you make a conclusion based on that my original question was either yes no or that's the wrong question a better question is this you know but the those are things that that I think computer programs are better able to sort of sift through and and see things that might be right under our noses you know so it looks like you might be a couple of years older than me, but
0: so the space race in 69, we get to the moon, you know, we're going back and forth a little bit and that kind of dies off, but like we're, like, we're supposed to be like living in the Jetsons world now. And like, we're so far <laughs> from that.
1: Like, do you... I, I'm disappointed. Yeah. When I was a kid, I, I thought, yeah, we're going to have, we're all going to be taking our summer vacations to, you know, Jupiter and Mars and whatever. Um...
0: Just zip <laughs> over there and zip back. And I know Elon's doing a lot of things. He's made it cheaper, reusable rockets and all these things and cheaper to the space station and come back, you know, and all that sounds great. And, you know, not that your, your movie is a documentary for the future. Yeah. Do you think 2049 is just like, in, in like the real world is like too aggressive? Like, do you, do you think we're going to be there for that? Like, it just you know, seems it, that everything gets pushed back and.
1: Uh, yeah, it could, if what we would need. I think the one thing we're missing, we're still stuck in the propulsion mindset. We're actually everything's Newtonian physics now, you know, which is inertia and that sort of thing. so the even the rockets you use are these massive, heavy, you know it's like they're a massive sledgehammer to get you out of the Earth's atmosphere. and then once you're out, it's a it's fairly easy to pop around the propulsion needed for that. I think we'll need a revolution uh, in propulsion systems, either an ion engine or something that it's using particles or something that that you put in a little bit of energy and get a massive amount out and we don't have that yet so we would we would need that to be able to uh, not not including you know how do you deal with human beings their bodies uh, adjustment to you know major g forces you know if you accelerate to 12 Gs, the person's going to be, you know, a pile of mush when you open it, you know, the capsule afterwards. So I'd say the short answer is for hemisphere to be a reality, we would need some major technology to, to kick in. I think business wise, I I do have a strong sense that's how it will come about. It'll be, you know, the Chevron of you know companies is going to say, hey, there's a bunch of nickel ore that we can take or titanium or whatever that we can we can mine from this particular planet or asteroid and and I think again, once you set up out there, you can have platforms and things that are, you know, where you sort of come and go and refuel, and you're not always going back and forth to Earth. People could potentially leave Earth and be up there for five, 10 years at a stretch. You know, of course, there'll be other other things, the atrophy of the body and that sort of stuff that you deal with in weightlessness. So there's there's still other things to fill out. But so I'm probably being a little, a little optimistic, but I didn't want to make it so far in the future that I had to abandon you know, all everyday objects like, you know, coffee cups and forks and spoons. It's like, well, let's use some things that that, you know, were, were made today that right. would still exist in 25 years. You know?
0: And you're trying to keep the budget down. You're like, what's in my yes. cupboard? Like what can I got?
1: Exactly. Exactly. You're like, watching, so where's you my
0: coffee ready? cup? Like, sorry, sorry. It's a prop.
1: Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> I think we had <laughs> that too. We had like crew cups <laughs> and I had to keep saying, no, no, these are the props for the movie. Crew <laughs> people, this is where you stick yours in between shots. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's funny. So have you been paying attention to any of this David Grush or this alien disclosure, UFO disclosure that's been coming out?
1: Uh, just through, you mean like the Freedom of
0: Information Act stuff or? Uh, David Grush is the government whistleblower and he, he testified in front of yeah. Congress, I think in July, and he's been doing yes. a bunch of rounds on uh, interviews and, and podcasts. And each interview seems like he, it, I guess if you want to say it's disclosure, you know, he doesn't really have a lot of firsthand proof. But for what he's claiming is that the US government has, you know, close to double, if not double j- digits, I've heard between nine and 12. But again, I don't have any sources, but I'm just hearing between nine to 12 crafts that they've recovered in okay. uh, different stages of either a wreckage or abandoned. Uh, and then they just have it. Some of them are ancient, apparently, uh, and they have recovered some of the bodies of the, He, you know, he likes to call them non-human intelligence. Uh, yes. But then he's like switched to pilots he likes to call them too so if the u.s government has and, and you know we're, we're going forward uh chuck schumer has a bill he wants to put out to try to uh, disclose more information have people coming forward they have these whistleblower you know bills out to try to get you know all this awesome alien information that if, if yeah. that's your that's your cup of tea you know it, but this has been in that world for a long time and now getting it in the normal world is pretty big Huge. but if you see some of these videos like and what people say that these things can do, it is fantastically amazing,
1: you know, that you come up the 12 G's, that these things just stop on a dime, yeah, right hand turns. That, so there's a ton of evidence that there's something uh, that we can't explain by normal means, which is this my science my scientist hat, if I put that on. To say they're not real, or they are, or they're extraterrestrial, they may be extraterrestrial. They may be some technology that that we have here that's, that's under lock and key. Uh, they may be interdimensional, which in some respects would explain more of how do they suddenly appear on our scopes. Like we don't see we don't hear, hey, there's a UFO by Jupiter. Oh, it's by Mars. It's the asteroid belt. Yeah, you know, it's it's we saw one by the moon. You never seem to hear that. It's just like it's suddenly it's here in our airspace. But I think the the stuff, the footage you're talking about, where you have an object performing these non-ballistic moves where it's suddenly here and stops on a dime, that that's definitely the type of technology you would need for. And that's not technology we currently possess, at least that we know about. That's what you would need for, you know, if you're a hemisphere and you want to get to a Mercury in, you know, four days, you're going to need something like that. And in, and what that is doing, the good thing about that evidence is it it's not, that's not Newtonian physics, which scares a lot of people because then you're saying, well, wait, maybe there's, so what, the p- picture we have of physics is not complete or there are holes in it or, you know. That makes tends You'll hear more often than not, those those kind of questions, you know, makes people anxious, people in high places. And so so the question is, then, you know, if it is using some other propulsion technology, what is it? How does that operate? Whether there's bodies, whether those are truly biologically different material than human beings. You know, again, I would love to see that info. Because if there are bodies they've recovered, I'm sure the first thing they did was, do they have blood? You know, it's like ET. You know, right? Yeah, they want to cut them open. Let's yeah, let's see what the hell this is. You know, is this normal tissue? Let's study it all. So it's good that people are looking at that again. I know it's been around for a while and various sort of under the radar a lot of times, but it's it's cool that uh, we're looking at that again. So one of the reasons that I always
0: kind of thought that, you know, this is disclosure, that if like UFOs are brought to the mainstream media for everybody to consider real, that would be disclosure. That's what they call it. But, you know, if there are these propulsion systems that don't require, you know, uh, fossil fuels, gasoline, all this stuff, like, you know, we look pretty pretty foolish for the last hundred years of fighting all these Middle East wars and trying to take over things when like you never really needed that. And it's also like, hey, does Exxon want to give up their billion dollar a year? You know, profit that they're getting, if if all of a sudden you know maybe this is like it could be carbon based or oxygen or whatever it might be whatever they're they're using, but since you're bringing up like mining these asteroids and things like that, you know that that could be the replacement of their money. That you know you're worried like hey right. Exxon's not going to go yeah. without a fight. No, that's but then it's like well maybe they're going to buy an asteroid and say hey that's our ten billion dollars now and go get that nickel and ore and titanium.
1: That's absolutely true. And that's historically, that's what happens when you shut down, you know, it's like everybody was using kerosene and then standard oil. That guy's like, oh, I can make gasoline. And there's an internal combustion engine. And that evolved into automobiles, you know, because because of that thinking where it was like everybody was doing railroads and and kerosene for their lights. And it became that became light bulbs and electricity and, you know, internal combustion engine. So, uh, historically, that's ha- tends to be how it evolves. You close the door on one thing, and it's like, oh no! It's like, no, put your resources shift and put them into this uh, this new thing. And there are tons of opportunities, I'm sure, in in the new technologies. That's what we have
0: to hope for. And it was, you know, so that was kind of one of my thinkings for it always. And then also, you know, if the government doesn't want to give away their latest toy or technology. You know, then you have to like, deal with, you know, according to them, you have to deal with like in uh, Iran and. Russia and China finding and and things like that, so they had to keep their yeah. stuff under wraps. But David Grush, this whistleblower, he was on Joe Rogan a week or two ago, a few weeks ago, and towards the end of his interview, he said something that made so much sense, and then it was so like disheartening for maybe like why we're still in this like not public disclosure. He was like, "Well, so they recovered these crafts or this technol whatever it might be technology, you know, yeah. uh, pieces of wreckage, and passed them off to private industries." So they, they, you know, to uh, like Lockheed and things like that. So you can't get FOIA'd and get that information. And he's like, there would be so many lawsuits for these other private industries that didn't get to bid on that government contract. And he's like, so like, he thinks that's one of the reasons that it's slowing down, like the disclosure, because you're gonna have all these other companies of like, I didn't get a chance to build a trillion dollar thing. I didn't get a chance to do this or, you know, increase. So it's just like the red tape and the, you know, it's just maddening. It's like, come on, like, give us the cool stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's the status quo stuff is very strong. You know, it's again when we proved that the earth wasn't the center of the universe, that scared the shit out of a lot of people. And they squashed, you know, whatever they threw people in jail. It's like suppress, suppress I think jail suppress. was good. They threw people in the fire. I think jail would have been fine for some yeah, of the people. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> you know. But the idea is that you're suppressing something that you're scared of. And eventually it's gonna get out. You know, it's like if it's possible. Somebody's going to figure it out, even if it's the government's got it under lock and key. A private individual is going to be like, well, I just built something, an anti-gravity device in my basement, you know. So there'll be very likely things like that popping up, too. But yeah, I think that there is some level of it that's because it it doesn't you can't explain it. We're very someone said to me once, I, I know we talked about remote viewing or something at the beginning that in other countries like Russia and China, they use it all the time. Remote viewing. They don't care that they can't explain it. They're like, it's part of normal science, we just haven't figured it out yet. It's only in the US that we say it this this simply can't be. This has to be fake. They must be faking it because it doesn't fit into our picture of, of you know, how physics works. And I feel like if that's the that's kind of the biggest hang-up is not only is there the technology, but then you're gonna have to explain, well, how does it move around like this? Or how does it use this crazy, you know, a pellet of this? You know, element that lets you run it for a year or whatever the particulars are of it, you know?
0: Right. So, we are talking about the Newtonian physics and, you know, like a lot of that's just putting people into a box. And anything you want to think outside of that, like, well, that's not possible because physics told you. You're like, well, okay, yeah. well, there's perpetual motion like over here. So, like, like, isn't that going against it? And yeah. there's also yeah. fascinating articles I've read and, and podcasts that I've heard of people um, just going through the patent office. You can like search through patents. And then things that are the government will just sweep up under national security. So, getting towards some of that anti gravity, like what's described uh, in the patent that's now yeah. no longer to be developed. And it's like, wow, that's really fascinating that in the 50s, 60s, 70s, like there was like uh, news articles on Time Magazine about anti uh, yeah. gravitational yeah. that they were doing in the 50s. Like, oh, we almost broke it. We almost broke it. And then it's off the front page. And for 60, 60 years, it's just, you know, kooks talking about yeah, it. Like, exactly. Oh, Time Magazine it's- talked about like,
1: it's close distant, it, and, yeah, it's far more credible that to me, that's just the disinformation campaign. You just label them kooks, whether it's the psychic phenomenon stuff we were talking about that suddenly it's like, oh, it's crazy. They're all crazy. There's no anti-gravity. You know, it's more likely when you see evidence of something, it's like it probably didn't disappear. Somebody removed it from our public awareness for some other agenda, you know, and yeah, I'm always suspicious of that stuff. Things, yeah, things almost, shouldn't just disappear one day, you know?
0: But, you know, as I get older, you know, you have this like pie in the sky view growing up and like, hey, we're going to have world peace one day. And like, everyone cares about each other. And then as you get older and older, you're just like, nope, none of it. It's all just run by, you know, whatever piece of the government or company or whatever it might wants to be like, they just want as much control as they can and just kind of keep people in the same thing. And it, it's just a shame that some of this technology, I really think could improve a lot of, People's well being, you know, you wouldn't have to deal with all this, as I've talked about, just like this nonsense, you know, every 10 years in the Middle East, something pops off. Yeah. That's like, yeah, it always ends up being, you know, further down the line, like, oh, we actually just got an oil contract for it, or oh, they were running a pipeline through this way. And, it, you know, it's very disheartening when there could be technology out
1: there for people. I mean, the hope too is with, with space exploration that that would be a unifying thing, you know, for all collectively looking at how to expand off planet Earth. That is really a human endeavor you know regardless of what country you live in we're all working on that problem and trying to figure that out and and to the extent that even our solar system which is huge becomes an international place where you've got you know oh the russians are over on mars doing their thing and koreans are in the asteroid belt and the U.S. is screwing up Mercury or whatever. You know, (laughs) I'm sure it'll adopt certain aspects of what we see now on geopolitically here. But that's exciting to me to 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 sort of imagine us uh, reaching that point where there's more, where it's expanded. You know, out there.
0: Yeah, hopefully we get more of a Star Trek feel, and we're just like one federation of like a space force type of thing this way don't have yeah to worry that about, would be like,
1: easier wouldn't it if we have yeah, like an instead adopted, of like it, we've agreed that there's a federation a space federation and we're not right It'd be much better instead of like
0: what are the russians doing on earth and now we have to go to mars and get them like oh my god please stop like just yeah let's build let's get better but i'm excited for the future see what happens i, I do think you know we talked about we should be living in the jetsons right now you know we should have the doc brown time machine i don't know if we're gonna be that far yet but like we're definitely in that cutting edge elon musk is the, the technology that he's just putting out that wasn't even thought of 10 years ago, you know, that yeah. like these rockets are just one and done and they're dumped in the
1: ocean. He's like, what? I'm just going to land them and reuse them again. Like so much easier. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, it takes innovative thinking that sometimes an individual rather than a corporation's more likely to have. Two things I wanted to mention just before we're... Whenever we wrap this up, I, I need to give a shout out to Marcus Manderson, who is our composer on Hemisphere, who came in during the rough cut. And I gave him very limited. I want a track soundtrack that's kind of like this, kind of like that. You know, I'm not a music person. I gave him very limited stuff. And he very quickly turned around, I think, eight cues for the movie that were very had, you know, long beginning, middle and end that I was able to edit them and cut them up and use them in different ways. He was a huge help. And then the other thing I did want to mention, too, is just I think I mentioned sort of a uh, like a, you know, a teaser for you. Just that that we have we have an alternate ending to the movie. I don't know if you have watched Hemisphere yet. I had work yesterday, so I do plan on watching uh, it this okay, weekend. OK, good, good. Yeah. Well, when you watch it, keep this in mind. But there is a the, the Phoebe character, who's the woman who's in the crawl space. There's kind of a running thing with her. Is she? Isn't she? And it involves cybernetic Whether you know, she potentially there's something called XD-17, which is this sort of secret initiative that's going on underneath the, the main part of the story. And I don't really explain currently what that is, but, it you know, the, the alternate ending of the movie is that it involves cybernetics and a very particular way that it relates to this character, Phoebe, who's been in the crawl space. So it's so like anyway, anyway, Bishop you watch it-
0: from Aliens.
1: Uh, I would say yes. Like cybernetics say that cybernetics, like that? Like this could be possibly? That it could be a person who maybe the behavior that you see is because there's something going on with her that you don't know about. Wow. That there was, you know, it was maybe illegal to test it on Earth. So we test it up in space, and maybe not everyone on the crew was made aware. Maybe some of them were, and the ones that were were like, oh let me take advantage of this individual if that's not a human, you know? So
0: Well, so the, I was going to say that as we were talking about space and it's, and it's going to be interesting that like the first person born on moon, born on the moon or born on Mars is no longer an Earthling, is no longer, right. I mean, are you still right. a human? Are you still, are you covered by anything? Like you're going to have to have your own, <laughs> you, know, no, you could be great, running all these experiments out
1: there that yeah, Geneva you know, no, Convention
0: doesn't matter. You know, you're like, hey, yeah. go back to Earth and complain about that.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, that's an... I'm sure that's inevitable, and there'll be somewhere a division of rights, you know, or the the muggle, you know, wizard. Yeah. So, well, you're just one of those, you know. You were born. Yeah. I think they do that in the Expanse too. The Belters are people that are born on the asteroid belt. Mm, the... I never saw the Expanse, so I have to check oh, that okay. out. Yeah, yeah. That, there's a Matt that...
0: Damon movie where they shrink them down, and then they don't want to give the people the like their full voting rights because you know they're like, but you're only like one eighth <laughs> of a human. You know, but it, yeah, it's
1: interesting. Yeah. I'm sure that, you know, the unfortunate part of yeah, people is that we are still very hung up on on physical appearances that way. So
0: I think that's great. So your distribution, you're you're with uh, Amazon video, all these all these other great places. How did you get hooked up with them? So was- uh, And do you see this being beneficial for you in the future? Or are you going to kind of look to maybe host your movie on your own and have people rent it that
1: way? So I would say that second step is something further down the line, but I, we're being distributed through Indie Rights, which it's one of four different distributors I talked to while I was in the editing phase, finishing up Hemisphere. A couple folks had contacted me, and I'd reached out to a few people, and I found them to be the best. Just take the least money off your side of the uh, equation for marketing and that sort of thing. And so through them, they have con- they have. They're the one that I use to place it on Amazon, Google Play. They're going to con in May and we'll do international at that point. They're really, really good at it. They give you really helpful feedback. Look at your posters, look at your material, how you're pitching this. How- they gave me very, very specific info that, that informed how we uh, marketed on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. So I, I've, this is my first time doing this. So I'm so far very pleased with them. I would see doing that again. I think the only thing is I'd love to have more sort of theatrical play in the future. It, it's, it tends to be a money loser for an indie production because by the time you subtract the costs, doing a theatrical run in L.A. and New York, you, you really lose money. Unless you've got, you know, if I had PR behind it, if you know, if we made a movie that got a lot of buzz and you know, we could guarantee that filling the seats, I think I would want to pursue that too. But I'm curious to see how all of this shapes up. The digital platforms are a big, big way that people consume movies now, you know, sort of post COVID, you have theatrical attendance down. And we most of us have big TVs in our home. And and there's something really, when you have a decent sound system, and you're like, I watched it, me and my friends watched it. And you know, or I watched it twice or whatever, you know, there's aspects of that that I, I'm pleased that we're doing this this way now. I'm learning a lot about it. And I'll probably, if you ask me in three months, I'll probably know more and say, oh, I don't like this platform and I like this one better. You know,
0: But it's good for the first one. So that's good. That is the hard yeah. part with, I think, movies and even sporting events, especially you know football. We're both in the the Northeast area. I think you're still yeah. in the Northeast and Virginia, Mid-East. Mid yeah. uh, you still get winter. And it's yes. like, do I want to go to a football game in December and freeze my butt off? Or I have an 80 inch TV, which prices have like dropped so cheap. You're like, yeah, I have a $400 80 inch TV. I ordered a pizza. I have my drinks next to me and I can pause it and go to the bathroom. Or yeah. I can go out here and do this and, you know, you know whatever it is. But some movies, you know, so hopefully. The point of it is, hopefully you can get a theater run if that's what you want. But then additionally, there are some movies like you need to see in the theater. Like Oppenheimer was made for a theater. Right, Like that's yeah. not made for your house, no matter what you have. Yeah. Like, it is made for that giant venue.
1: I'm hearing great things too about the Godzilla uh, plus one movie i've i've heard people excited for that so I, yeah. i'm a big
0: godzilla fan i didn't like when the, the matthew broderick i think they made him more right yeah like a dinosaur type thing or like monster right. like like i need godzilla as he is and then like change the story <laughs> around whatever you want
1: it's funny yeah. yeah it's funny how they uh those older movies actually that's really what got me into filmmaking in the first place was the godzilla movies and night of the living dead seeing those early really low budget but just like Entertaining, you know, it's like these are fun and and you know. Yeah, they're great
0: movies. So I'm not going to ask you what up have next. I mean, you just put this out, and all of a sudden, I'm like, hey, what do you have? What's happening now? Well, we but do. Like, I do. <laughs> I, I have, a, I right, have a
1: script. I have a script that I will be. I should. I'll knock with but it's done. I'll be done with it tomorrow, and I'll have to get that to Corey and get his feedback. I'd love to work with Paige and Julie again, the two actresses from Hemisphere. So you know, I'm I'm. Hopeful that I can get this new one off the ground early next year. It's smaller even than hemisphere. So learning certain things, I'm like, you know, if I if I can do something that's a, even a little more contained and maybe less happening as far as narrative threads, a little simpler. That's the next one up. And then beyond that, I don't, I don't really know how big I will go. I like sort of the area that I'm in right now. There's something that's, you know, when you can see the whole movie and you know what the parts cost there's something really nice about that and you can put time into the performances with the actors you know if i was doing two characters trapped in an elevator for two hours that would suit me fine if i had to do david lean like okay you're in a desert and there's 40 guys on horseback it's like uh you know the (laughs) stuff that would give me a, a heartache because the logistics of it and there's other stuff that's like I can go in and there's going to be, you know, acting to work out and, and drama. And, you know, for instance, you in your podcasting studio and zombies trying to break in. That would be perfect for yeah. me. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready to get hired whenever you're ready. This oh, is okay. Right. Yeah.
0: <laughs> my podcasting studio is my living room. So I oh, know okay. you have All much right. more of a studio. Well, I can I I see it
1: here. So it's a, it's a dramatic... Could yeah. be a dramatic setting, you know, lit. Could and, be. And, yeah. The bright destroyer. light
0: shine. Zombies don't attack during the daylight. So you know
1: you're That's not too true. afraid of
0: them during the day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Can you give us a, just a, a quick hint of what this new script is? Is this in space? Is this what's happening? So
1: this one actually is set in space as well. It's um it's basically somebody who's hiring someone who has a, a ship to take them to a particular location and transport illegal bioengineered <laughs> specimens. And they have an AI unit with them that malfunctions, and there's an alien consciousness that comes in and sort of stops what's happening and examines the technology, the space uh, the spacecraft, and the and the uh, AI unit, and that becomes kind of the main adversary that the the couple of main characters have to the, the two humans in the story have to deal with an alien consciousness taking over their technology. If that's not too vague or, or surreal sounding.
0: No, that's right up my alley. I'm in for oh, all of that. Okay.
1: Good, good, <laughs> yeah. good.
0: Chris, where can people find you? You have a website for the movie?
1: So it's actually, the easiest way is it, it is available on Amazon Prime. If you either search Hemisphere Movie or Hemisphere the Movie. It's also on Google Play. We do have you know a Facebook page, Hemisphere the Movie, Instagram, Hemisphere Movie, and then a Twitter account which is actually under my name, Chris Mays. But we we do have a website for Trujillo Creek, which is my production company. But most of the marketing we're doing is on the social media. Looking to build up the Amazon uh, review. So anybody watching it, drop some stars to write a quick review. We'd love it. Okay, perfect. We need reviews for the
0: movie. I will put your links in the show notes. they will have all of that. And man, I really appreciate you coming on. Any future projects, anything you want to come on and talk about, the door is always open. Let me awesome. know. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. You have a great day.
1: Thank you very much. I appreciate it.
0: All right. Take care. You too. Bye. All right, everyone. That was our show. Don't forget to leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream your podcast. Like and follow the podcast on Facebook and Instagram to stay up to date in all things wild and weird. Check out the links in the show notes for more information on our guest. The biggest support you can offer is to tell everyone about the podcast. Until next time.